Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. The People C. Respondent. V. Clinton Britt. Appellant. Jenny C. Wu. For Appellant. Sheila L. Bautista, for Respondent. Fahi, J. We hold that there was legally sufficient evidence of defendant's intent to defraud, deceive or injure another, within the meaning of Penal Law Section 170.30. In addition to the undisputed direct evidence of defendant's knowing possession of counterfeit bills, there was sufficient circumstantial evidence from which the jury could infer this separate mens rea of intent to defraud. I. A police officer observed defendant Clinton Britt standing on West 42nd Street in Manhattan, in front of a haunted house attraction known as Times Scare, drinking out of a container covered by a brown paper bag. As the uniformed officer approached, defendant looked in his direction and then ran upstairs into Times Scare. The officer pursued defendant, stopped him, and observed that the container was an open can of an alcoholic beverage. Defendant was unable to provide a form of identification that included his home address and date of birth. Consequently, the officer could not issue a summons, and defendant was handcuffed and searched incident to arrest. During that search, the arresting officer found cash, in two separate wads or bundles, in a pocket of defendant's jacket. In one of defendant's pants pockets, the officer found a small Ziploc bag containing what appeared to be crack cocaine. Defendant then became agitated and made a hopping movement, after which the officer found two more Ziploc bags at defendant's feet. At the station house, the arresting officer counted the cash, finding a wad of loose bills, totaling $148, and 17 folded bills, totaling $300. The latter bundle of bills, four $10 bills and 13 $20 bills, was secured by a rubber band. The officer suspected, based on the visual and tactile appearance of the folded bills, that they were counterfeit. As the officer was taking defendant to the holding area, defendant said to him, I want to talk to a detective, and I will give up who I got the currency from the counterfeit bills from, if you make the drug charges go away. The police department contacted the United States Secret Service and a Secret Service agent identified the 17 bills as counterfeit currency. Defendant was charged by indictment with 17 counts of criminal possession of a forged instrument in the first degree and two counts of criminal possession of a controlled substance in the seventh degree. Defendant moved to suppress the property seized from him and his statements, as fruits of illegal police action. At the suppression hearing, the arresting officer testified that a paper bag is a common method of concealing an open container of alcohol. The officer also testified about the drinking motion he had seen defendant make with the container concealed in the brown bag and defendant's flight into Times Scare. Defendant argued that his actions had not provided the officer with reasonable suspicion justifying his detention. Supreme Court denied defendant's motion. During defendant's trial, the jury heard testimony from, among others, the arresting officer and the Secret Service agent who had identified the bills as counterfeit. The people did not move to qualify the Secret Service agent as an expert witness, but defendant raised no objection at this time to the agent's qualifications or the fact that the agent had not been formally qualified to testify. The prosecutor asked the Secret Service agent, in counterfeit interaction, in your experience, what do you see when people are passing counterfeit currency? The agent responded, a lot of the times they will have their genuine currency in one pocket, and they have the counterfeit currency separated in a separate pocket. At this point, defense counsel twice interjected with a single word objection but did not specify the nature of the objection. 
On cross-examination, the Secret Service agent testified that he had never made any low-level street arrests. At the close of the prosecution's case and again prior to submission of the case to the jury, defendant moved for a trial order to dismiss all counts related to the charges of criminal possession of a forged instrument, on the ground that there was legally insufficient evidence of his intent to defraud Penal Law Section 170.30. Defendant cited our decision in People v. Bailey 2009. Supreme Court denied the motion. In its jury charge, Supreme Court instructed the jury that the Secret Service agent had given opinions on technical matters. The court then gave the jury a charge based on the criminal jury instructions, as follows. Ordinarily, a witness is limited to testifying about facts and is not permitted to give an opinion. Where, however, scientific, medical, technical, or specialized knowledge will help the jury understand the evidence or to determine facts and issue, a witness with expertise in a specialized field may render opinion about such matters. You should evaluate the testimony of any such witness just as you would the testimony of any other witness. You may accept or reject such testimony in whole or in part just as you may with respect to the testimony of any other witness. In deciding whether to accept such testimony, you should consider the following, the quality and believability of the witness, the fact and circumstances upon which the witness's opinion was based, the reasons given for the witness's opinion, and whether the witness's opinion is consistent or inconsistent with other evidence in the case. During a conference concerning the jury instructions, defense counsel placed on the record an exception to this part of the charge. Defense counsel stated that the agent was never sworn in as an expert witness and had not been qualified as an expert and added that this was part of the reason why I objected to his talking about his knowledge as to how people keep money in one pocket or the other. Counsel did not further explain the specific nature of the prior objection to that testimony or move to strike the testimony. The jury found defendant guilty of all the counts of first-degree criminal possession of a forged instrument and one count of seventh-degree criminal possession of a controlled substance. Defendant was sentenced, as a second felony offender, to concurrent prison terms of three to six years on the forged instrument counts and time served for possession of a controlled substance. On appeal, defendant raised challenges to legal sufficiency, the Secret Service agent's testimony, and the legality of the initial detention. The appellate division affirmed. The court held that the jury could reasonably have inferred from the evidence that defendant knowingly possessed counterfeit money with fraudulent intent, that defendant's challenge to the agent's testimony was unpreserved, and that the arresting officer had reasonable suspicion, justifying the stop. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. We now affirm. 2. An individual is guilty of criminal possession of a forged instrument in the first degree under Penal Law Section 170.30 when, with knowledge that it is forged and with intent to defraud, deceive or injure another, he utters or possesses any forged instrument of a kind specified in Section 170.15. The language of the statute contemplates a complex mens rea that requires both knowing possession and intent. The intent element does not, however, require use or attempted use as an element of the crime. Nor does it require that the contemplated use be imminent. Because intent is an invisible operation of the mind, direct evidence is rarely available, in the absence of an admission, and is unnecessary where there is legally sufficient circumstantial evidence of intent, in the form of the defendant's conduct and the circumstances surrounding the alleged crime. Defendant contends that the evidence before the jury was not legally sufficient to prove that he had intent to defraud another by means of the counterfeit bills. Defendant does not dispute that there was sufficient evidence that he knew that the currency was forged. He cites People v. Bailey for the proposition that intent to defraud cannot be inferred from knowing possession alone, and he maintains that the evidence in his case does not demonstrate intent. In Bailey, 
The defendant caught the attention of police officers who were on the lookout for pickpockets in a commercial district in Manhattan. The officers saw defendant Bailey trying to take handbags from customers in several fast food restaurants and arrested him. Three counterfeit $10 bills were recovered from Bailey's pocket. Overhearing the officers discuss the counterfeit appearance of the bills, Bailey reportedly said, You got me for the counterfeit money, but I didn't have my hand near the purse. Following a jury trial, Bailey was convicted of criminal possession of a forged instrument in the first degree. Bailey moved to set aside the verdict on that count, arguing that the evidence was not sufficient to prove that he had the mens rea of intent to defraud, deceive or injure another. Although Bailey did not dispute that he knew the bills were counterfeit, he insisted that this was insufficient to prove intent. This court dismissed the criminal possession of a forged instrument count. Knowledge alone is not sufficient to hold defendant criminally liable for possessing a forged instrument. Knowledge and intent are two separate elements that must each be proven beyond a reasonable doubt by the people. Simply put, drawing the inference of defendant's intent from his knowledge that the bills were counterfeit improperly shifts the burden of proof with respect to intent from the people to the defendant. Stated another way, by ruling that the evidence was sufficient to sustain defendant's conviction of possession of a forged instrument, the lower courts have effectively stripped the element of intent from the statute and criminalized knowing possession. Bailey stands for the proposition that intent to use counterfeit bills to defraud, deceive, or injure cannot rationally be inferred from knowing possession of counterfeit bills on its own. As we subsequently explained, intent cannot be presumed from knowing possession alone unless there is a statute establishing such a presumption, and there is no such statutory presumption with respect to criminal possession of a forged instrument in the first degree. Bailey is distinguishable from this appeal. Bailey was found with only $30 in counterfeit bills on his person whereas defendant had $300. It could hardly be inadvertent that defendant had so large a sum of counterfeit bills. Most significantly, defendant's counterfeit currency was physically separated from the genuine bills on his person, and the jury heard testimony from the Secret Service agent that individuals who pass counterfeit currency will separate their counterfeit currency from their genuine bills. In Bailey, the evidence of Bailey's admission to the police that the bills were counterfeit demonstrated only knowing possession, and there was no independent evidence of intent to pass the counterfeit bills. That single piece of evidence of knowing possession was not enough in itself to show the separate mens rea of intent. Here, by contrast, there were several factors from which the jury could infer not only knowing possession of the counterfeit bills, but also intent to use the bills to defraud. Viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecution, as we must. A rational jury could have found beyond a reasonable doubt that defendant intended to pass the counterfeit bills in his possession and thereby defraud others. Here, considering the quantity of the counterfeit bills found on defendant's person while he was in a commercial district of Manhattan popular with tourists, his admission that the bills were counterfeit, and the fact that he separated them from genuine bills by means of a band, the evidence was legally sufficient to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that defendant intended to pass the bills. In particular, the jury could have rationally inferred that defendant kept the counterfeit bills separate from genuine currency so that he could quickly and easily produce one or the other, as needed, depending on whether he was in a situation where counterfeit bills were likely to be detected. The Secret Service agent testified that people who pass counterfeit bills will physically separate them from genuine currency by using separate pockets, and the jury was given a charge permitting it to treat the agent's statements as expert testimony. It was rational for the jury to infer defendant's intent to pass the counterfeit money from the segregation of the counterfeit bills, here achieved by a rubber band, along with the other circumstantial evidence we have summarized. 3. Next, defendant challenges the admission of the Secret Service agent's testimony that individuals who pass counterfeit bills separate their genuine currency from their counterfeit currency. 
he maintains that the agent had no expertise with regard to street-level arrests and that his testimony invaded the jury's province. We agree with the appellate division that defendants' objections to the testimony are unpreserved. Beyond that, these objections would go to the weight, not the sufficiency, of the evidence. During the agent's testimony, defense counsel issued only one word objections, without any elaboration. The word objection alone was insufficient to preserve the issue for our review because it did not specify the basis for the general objection. Subsequently, in the discussion of the jury charge, defense counsel contended that the agent had not been qualified as an expert witness, and added that this was part of the reason why he had objected to the agent's testimony about separation of counterfeit from genuine currency in a different pocket. Notably, defendant did not move to strike the agent's testimony. Defense counsel's remarks targeted portions of the jury instruction and did not function to specify the basis of the earlier general objection at a time when the trial court could still effectively change its prior ruling allowing the testimony. 4. In addition, defendant maintains that the arresting officer lacked reasonable suspicion to justify the original stop. We disagree. The parties agree that the police intrusion at issue here, namely forcibly stopping and detaining defendant, occurred at the third level of the graduated four-level test for evaluating street encounters initiated by the police. That level requires a reasonable suspicion that the defendant has committed, is committing or is about to commit a felony or misdemeanor. It is well established that whether the circumstances of a particular case rise to the level of reasonable suspicion presents a mixed question of law and fact, and review by this court is therefore limited to whether there is evidence in the record supporting the lower court's determinations. Here, the arresting officer observed defendant drinking from a container hidden in a paper bag, which the officer testified is a common method of concealing an open container of alcohol, and defendant fled when he saw the officer approach. The combination of these factors constitutes record support for the conclusion that the officer had reasonable suspicion that defendant had committed, or was committing, a crime. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Decided December 19, 2019. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.